The GovEx show is supported by Forrester, helping government organisations perform at their best. Visit forrester.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to another episode of the GovEx show. I'm Tim Coulthard, your community director here at GovEx Digital. And today we're going to be exploring a topic that's close to my heart, the future of places and particularly how IoT and digital technology can deliver new experiences, new ways of helping our cities function, helping us get around, helping us shop, helping us connect with each other all kinds of opportunities to explore with technology. And so it's great to have joining us two experts in the field, Simon Williams and Lalita Nair from our friends at Microland. We're gonna be getting into some of this uh, in the IoT space, how digital sensors, connectivity are already enhancing the way we think of and operate our places. And also what's coming further down the line. How can digital twins help us to develop new ways of thinking about place? Loads to get into. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. So Simon, Lalita, welcome to the GovEx show. Really good to have you joining us today. Fantastic to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thrilled to be here, uh, Tim. That's Thank a, that's you for invite. Great, great to have you because I'm, I'm excited to talk about some of the topics we've got on the board because um, lots going on in the world right now and digital is enabling some tremendous changes in terms of the way our organizations operate, the way our communities operate, the way our towns and cities are built and imagined, lots going on. And I know you've got some thoughts around that. So keen to dive into some of that. But before we do, let's just set a bit of the scene. Um, you're both from Microland, um, but perhaps you could just tell us a bit about your, your background and your, your roles and areas of expertise. So Lalita, maybe you could just jump in first. Absolutely. Um, thank you again, Tim. Uh, pleasure to be here. I lead the IoT solutions organization at Mitreland. Uh, we've been around for um, three decades. Um, overall, we started as an infrastructure company, but um, the IoT unit started off about four, unit, four years ago. Uh, we're a startup within a larger company. Um, and I get the fun job of working with industrial customers, commercial customers, private sector, public sector, um, trying to uh, digitize, transform, join them and partner in their journey towards transformation. Um, as you know, uh, Tim, the last few years have been transformational at uh, a very accelerated pace. And so we're seeing a lot of action, a lot of demand, a lot of opportunity, and I'm right in the center of all this um, uh, excitement. So yeah. look forward to having a really interesting conversation here with you about uh, cities and spaces because that's transforming at an unprecedented space. Yeah, it sounds like you're in a very privileged position, as you say, to, to be looking around and, and sort of being at the heart of some of that change. There's a huge amount going on. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing how that's playing out from you uh, and with the rest of the Microland team. So, Simon, maybe you could just jump in at this point. Tell us a bit about your, your area of focus uh, and expertise. Sure. So I've spent, uh, actually, I started off in work, I realised, around about the time that uh, Microland were formed. So it shows how long I've actually been working with our places. I've been working with local authorities and government for a number of, number of decades. More recently, moving through software, ICT, more recently, very much focused on place, IoT, and um, 
and, and also the, the connection with microland very much network managing our data secure securely handling this proliferation of data that's coming through um, and moving away from that smart city story you know, I, I was i was one of the guilty ones talking lots about smart cities very very passionate about it we're now moving towards data-driven locations and i think that's a more sensible place to put it so yeah yeah let's explore and I, and I know you have huge passion for the sort of place making and, and the future of places, and I'm, I'm sure that's going to come out as we go along. Um, so I guess I guess a good place to start is to kind of set the scene. Here we are in 2021 um, and we can't we can't ignore what's what's happening, what's happened, what's happening in terms of the pandemic. Um, and so it, it, it seems it seems churlish not to sort of acknowledge the impact that that's had. Lalita, how has the pandemic sort of changed the landscape in terms of how organizations have, have operated and using technology in terms of deploying their response? And I guess there are lessons here for public sector and private sector. Nobody's been immune to the impact. So what have you seen in the last sort of 18 months? Sure. Tim, the, the pandemic has laid bare the unpreparedness of businesses, cities, governments, you know, to respond to unknowns. Um, the impact has just been very, very wide, you know, right from issues like public and worker safety, especially frontline workers, right? Um, the UK, for example, you know, 40% of the GDP represents the public sector. <laughs> and uh, it's, in fact, one of the largest employers uh, in the world. And so when you think about frontline workers and some of these key public um, services, all of them have been impacted, although they had to stay up and running during the pandemic. Um, hospitals were overwhelmed. Emerging um, safety regulations, we're seeing them. Remote education, our schools um, had to transform. And you know, you call it homeschooling, we call it remote and virtual learning. Here. You're bearing the scars of that one, yeah. Um, there's been a wave of remote workers. Um, there's been a trend of people moving out of cities um, to more remote areas. Um, supply chain has been disrupted. And so, you know, the impact of the pandemic has been devastating uh, in many ways, but it's not all gloom. It's also triggered an unprecedented pace of uh, transformation yeah. and accelerated pace of adoption of digital, right? So you started seeing that a majority of the governments rolled out contact tracing apps very early in the uh, pandemic. Um, granted, you know, there have been uh, questions that are about adoption, but they've been there. We have to give them that credit. Uh, we see temperature checks rolled out in multiple different places. Um, we've seen remote healthcare rolled out. Who would have thought, you know, that we'd be consulting with a physician over the phone? Not me. I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. Um, let alone doctors. <laughs> there are court hearings conducted on video calls yes. today. Yeah. That's the last group of uh, folks that I would expect to go digital, so to say, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's rolled out programs, um, you know, to enable remote workers, right? Utilizing the connectivity backbone of cities. And uh, it, it, you know, it makes made problems very obvious in places that there were problems. A lot of people still don't have internet or connection to internet. And forget remote learning when, you know, you don't even have an internet connectivity at home. Yeah. So... Um, you know, we, we saw the need for remote accessibility, collaboration, cloud adoption, right? Zoom and, and Teams became household names. Um, I wouldn't expect my grandparents, for example, to know how to use Zoom. Today they do. Yeah. 
So we, you know, restaurants, you know, I went to a, rest, a restaurant the other day and you don't have paper menu anymore, at least in the US, it's QR codes. Everyone's using a QR code to, you know, figure out what the menu is. Uh, online shopping skyrocketed, right? Moving to, um, you know, the um, a little bit more industrial, but ventilators were mass produced, supported by flexible manufacturing, additive manufacturing, right? Um, you know, GM, General Motors, for example, delivered 30,000 ventilators, yeah. producing one ventilator every seven minutes. Who could have yeah. thought that these things could be done, right? Yeah, absolutely. So overall, I'd say we are on a growth trajectory today, right? And uh, there is no going back. So we've, you know, there's a there's a bright side of things. And um, I think we've set ourselves up for a, a very interesting path ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like almost everything has changed. Um, and if we bring it to the UK public sector, where we've seen incredible amounts of transformation, Simon, you're talking to UK public sector organisations on a regular basis. So I'm interested to find out what are you hearing in terms of big challenges or areas of focus? You know, we've, we've come through sort of crisis mode, we hope, and we're now looking at the world and thinking, well, what do we build upon? What do we maintain? You know, what do we need to sort of re-engineer that was maybe spun up in a bit of a hurry and now we need to kind of give it that longevity in terms of its governance or its structure or its systems and that sort of thing what are you hearing from the uk public sector right now yeah great it's it's, it's absolutely absolutely about cementing what's happened yeah everybody talks about we've been talking about digital for a decade now and it's kind of not really been happening and there's been lots of fears around things like the cloud other enablers and it's, it's really not been happening um, the, the fact that we now have politicians across the country going, I must have digital because I need to talk to my constituents, itself is a game changer. You know, ch change comes from leadership down. And we've seen organisations like Transport for London and moving from some 400 home workers to 14,000 in three days. Now, that's, that's an incredible story, but of course, that needs to be cemented. Yeah. There's a lot lots of opportunity to make that happen. And I, 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 certainly something that, that has absolutely happened is, is a focus on um, leading with digital inclusion. Because the, the interesting piece, of course, was those that, who weren't excluded were instantly able to take, take advantage of these services, these new services and new ways of working. We have a whole population that weren't in that position. Yeah. And so I'm seeing, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a lot of focus from um, the strategy drivers to really hit that digital, digital inclusion piece. So we've a lot of community help, a lot of community help has happened. I have a colleague that bought 50 laptops for his village so that everybody was able to take advantage of this and, and have you know, shared chess clubs and all that kind of stuff. Chess clubs, that's probably a bad example. You could edit that out. <laughs> and shared whist, shared, <laughs> shared, shared shopping clubs. Let me start again. I just completely threw myself down. <laughs> ignore, the, ignore the 50 laptops bit. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, we've seen, so we've seen ourselves creating a better way for our communities to, to work together and, and include, but that's now been driven as strategy, absolute priority. So some other things have, have fallen by the wayside. So we've, we've stopped a little bit on, uh, you know, technology for technology's sake. It's actually really focused on the citizen now, which is great to see. One thing that has also absolutely happened is the recognition that our 
our places are reconfiguring. Yeah. And I think I think every city now has um, rows of empty restaurants. My, my, my local one is, is certainly the same. And there has been a debate for some time about what do we do with our with our high street anyway, with, with the advent of Amazons and so on and home buying. Everybody understands buying from home now. It's had a massive impact on our high street. So the politicians, but the budgets have been moved towards a real focus on place. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the mayor, Sadiq Khan, is, is providing seed funding for innovation for every London borough. Just 20,000, but it's, it's a seed piece of seed funding that goes, get your local SMEs working together to make those places places of entertainment rather than shopping. Um, how, do we, how do we look at our buildings differently? Is there, is there a way of, you know, now everybody's home working. We don't need those buildings. What on earth are we going to do with that estate? Well, finally, we can move to that more sustainable world where places... Buildings are where you live, work, play, school, crash, the yeah. works, no commuting, thereby cutting down environmental issues and, um, and transport. You know, we, there's a lot, we, we ourselves do a lot of work with um, car parking. Do we need car parks anymore? You know, so even the modern tech, the, the, the IoT buzzwords are having to re- reconfigure really quickly. So there's a lot of change there. I think I think the 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 other talking about leadership, something that that um, is being pushed through very much is that that we we now have our agencies more effectively speaking together. So that opens up opportunity to share things a, a little better and more, and more effectively work as a cohesive whole, and and that's, that can only benefit the citizen. Yeah. Nice and positive. Yeah, and I think that's something we heard central government and local government in fact was that you know whether it was a sort of local level delivering critical services different agencies joining together in central government different organizations hmrc dwp working together technology obviously allows that interoperability sharing data sets um you know all that kind of good stuff as it were and i I think you know you've set out some of these these future opportunities and it's really exciting and i think placemaking is is kind of potentially going to be reimagined right now I'm curious to find out, I suppose, if that's the vision, that's the dream for the future. Um, you know, I don't commute anymore. I don't get on a train for an hour and a half every day. I, I want to maybe hot desk in the, the nearest town for, you know, 10 minutes drive away, 10 minutes cycle away, walk mm. to a hot desk, whatever it might be. So lots of people reimagining their own futures on an individual level. And then I guess the, the placemaking and, and the, the local authorities and the municipalities and the city authorities have to have to sort of make that happen, have to create spaces and places and systems that, that sort of meet that need. And I guess looking at it practically, because we have to eventually, um, what, what are those aspects that technology can support maybe in the shorter term uh, and what's maybe further away, Lolita. I'm, I'm curious to find out how you're seeing tech like IoT enabling this reimagining that, that Simon set out. Sure. Yeah, Simon, and uh, thank you for setting up painting that uh, beautiful picture of the future. Um, it always gets me very, very excited um, to see you know where the direction in which we're going. Now, you know, the possibilities are vast, right? And we're just about scratching the surface. Uh, with technology. At the very core of transformation is this concept of breaking silos, 
and aggregating and bringing a context to you know anything anything that you're trying to understand right and while you know when you think about smart cities and smart spaces um, nirvana is a distance away uh, we are beginning to see pockets of transformation right one building at a time one vehicle at a time one street at a time right so we are beginning to see that just as an example I'm sure, Simon, you're very, very familiar with this. Um, the London Co Council of Ealing um, is wish, wishes to develop their suburb into a digital-first community. And they've been working with us um, to transform uh, and partner with them, right, to convert a paper-based system into a completely digital system, right? Um, and you talked about digital inclusion, Simon. I really like the term, right, because governments and pub the public sector is realizing that digital transformation is all about inclusion, transparency, right? And using data for the right reasons, right? Everyone's thinking about what's in it for me, right? And so, you know, with Ealing, uh, this London Council of Ealing, they were able to cut down uh, requests. This were, you know, multiple different workflows, for example, that would be paper-based. It would take up to a month. It's down to three days. So here you're talking about, and therefore, you know, when you're doing, when you're going digital, you're talking about, you know, improved costs, for example. But most importantly, it's a transformation of experience, user experience, and people are demanding more. This generation is demanding more. Um, it is not a choice anymore. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when, right? Um, let's talk about uh, utilities, water, electricity. Uh, my power as well as water company today are already sending me data. They have an app and I look at my personal water usage, electricity usage. Uh, it can also tell me when there's a leak. It's all, all it's looking for is my usage pattern. And if there is a leak or my, you know, I have an anomaly in my usage pattern, they're already telling me upfront that there's a leak. I was able to go into the yard and figure out that my sprinkler was leaking. I wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, you know, without technology, right? And so it's not technology for the sake of technology, but think about its impact on sustenance on the carbon footprint. Um, you know, we all have very aggressive goals and it's again, not a choice, right? Yeah. Talk about, you know, the 15 minute city concept, right? Uh, Paris just uh, declared its intent to become a 15 minute city. It's not the first, you have Melbourne, you have several others, but in order to bring to bear the concept of a 15 minute city, you're really talking about a backbone and underpinning infrastructure around you know, everything that you're trying to track, right? City scale analytics is going to be very important for us to be able to coordinate you know, initiatives and really even figure out what is working and what is not, right? The whole concept of a 15 minute city does require or does mean then that you have something that's very localized to that area, right? So as an example, if you know the lighting in a particular space, smart street lighting as an example, have to be turned off, you know, depending on the, the nature of that area, has to be turned off or on sooner than another space. You need to have a backbone to be able to analyze that, right? Um, talk about uh, buildings. Our customers are you know beginning to create digital twins of facilities, right? What is that? It's a fancy word to say, you know, I'm converting. I'm, I'm creating a digital form of my physical inert brick and mortar structure, right? Simon, you talked about, you know, the, the way in which I'm going to be using some of these facilities is going to change. 
because maybe I don't have as many, you know, commercial stores anymore, and I want to convert that into housing, right? But how do I need? How do I know whether you know something is or a facility is still being used or not? You know, what is my occupancy? Think about safety, right? Even going back into offices for our public se sector uh, personnel, uh, is it safe? Um, can I make sure that when I, you know, get somebody in, actually I work with a, with a, a logistics company, large logistics company, and, you know, online shopping is, um, is the thing right now. They were overwhelmed. They can't shut down. But, you know, we were able to roll out the, you know, these solutions that would allow you to keep social distance, for example, or respond to an event, right? Um, predictive cleaning, as an example, you know, how do you make sure that we're not following the same cleaning schedules day in and day out, meaning at five o'clock every day, I'm going to go to this floor, 10 o'clock, I'm going to go to that floor. If people are not coming to work, as an example, you don't need to go and clean those areas, right? You may need to very uh, specifically customize the cleaning to a particular floor that's being used, as an example, right? Again, all of this ties to sustenance also, but managing resources. So there's, you know, this there's plenty of such examples in terms of what's realistic, what's not. We're seeing, we're seeing several initiatives in pockets, but in order to attain the overall connected smart city vision, you know, this whole ecosystem of initiatives will need to work in tandem. It is a distance away, you know, where driverless cars are connected to the traffic signals, to smart parking, to bus schedules. All of that will come together, but it's, you know, it's not a dream anymore it is it is going to happen and it's going to happen very soon and is yeah. that is that a technological issue that holds it back or is it more of a sort of political structural issues that somebody some authority some entity has to stitch all these aspects together into a coherent sort of city-wide strategy or is it simply that the tech's not quite there or is it a bit of both that's a really that's a really good point actually one thing that we're talking to um chief operating officers for example they're, they've obviously woken up to the potential of data, but they, 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 they've many, particularly in, in government departments, have struggled with just getting a hold of the legacy, the data that they've got in yeah. their silos. You know, how, how do we standardize this and do and do meaningful things across organization? So it begins there. But, the, but they're, they're now being hit by this potential proliferation of data. And it's, it's growing daily. It's growing, you know, education, health. We heard about um, we've been able to support people people to live in the home through assistive technology, day-to-day-to-day, yeah. day to day. you can do one really interesting things with. Um, but potentially, are we creating a whole load more silos? Mm. You know, we need to get a hold of this. Uh, and there's a, there's a, to your point, Tim, there's an absolute argument that, that um, data strategies and, and combining that with how on earth do we manage that? So you're looking at automation, you're looking at AI, looking at machine learning technologies to allow humans to just cut through and get to what you really need to make a policy decision. So I think there's a piece right now of everybody going, right, we're here. As leaders, we need to get a hold of this and actually say, this is, this is, these are the standards, these are the policies, these, these are the topologies, the networks we're going to be using, we'll support you in this. Um, but also something that's really important is communication. Why are we doing this? You know, the, the citizens in charge now provide the policy, explain to them why we're doing it, and their data is safe. 
I think yeah. that's, that's a, a real fundamental ang angle, and that comes from the leaders at the top. Yeah, I, I'm, we're moving into an area here which we've not referred to explicitly yet, but is fundamental to, to whether this kind of bold new vision works, and that's around the ideas of privacy and consent and people understanding what's going on. So let's picture this, this connected smart city where, you know, all of the amenities are IoT enabled and, you know, if you go out and do make a 10 minute walk, how many data points are you triggering? How many times are you, is your behavior captured or monitored or whatever? And what we've seen through, you know, through the sort of COVID era is that citizens have become more data aware. You know, they're seeing these daily briefings about numbers and infection rates and R rates and apps recording. So on one hand, maybe that's a positive thing because data savviness, if you can call it that, enable some things to happen maybe more smoothly but then the counterpoint to that is it can create this sort of conspiracy theories and mistrust and mm -hmm. understanding well what why have you collected my data what are you doing with it what's it for so where are we now and what's coming in terms of data and privacy concerns are they barriers to change and, and how do we start to overcome them yeah. horrible question but who wants to have a stab at that <laughs> I, I can start since I mean, the threat base is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, particularly as, as these entry points, these some of these devices, they have they have no, you can't put a firewall in some of these devices and, and they're, they're accessible, you can potentially get straight into corporate systems. And we're not talking about major corporate hackers, we're talking about young people potentially having fun. You know, playing around with our junctions, with our smart junctions, you know, how, how do we maintain this? Well, obviously, we're, we're also aware of things like Bluetooth itself, as, as there's technology like LoRaWAN and so on, um, using, using city centre broadband, but Bluetooth itself will, will hit, we all know that it's possible to scan a key. You know, we've, yeah. we've heard about this, drive off with the car. And there's a bit of communication that goes with that. Actually, apparently, if you put the key in a metal box, you're safe. Your car's not going to get driven away. But who knew that? Yes. Who knew that? So there's a communication piece. So, but, Lolita, Simon's, Simon's put my anxiety level up to DEFCON 1. <laughs> tell, tell me there's some technology here that, that can help us out. Give, yes. us, give, us, give, us, give me some hope. I was going to ask you, uh, Tim, how much time do we have for this data debate? <laughs> no, I think, look, there's this data debate has been there for a while. It will continue over the next several years. Um, I'd say the nature of debate has changed and it changes from time to time, depending on, you know, you see incidents one after the other. But what I'll say is with the pandemic, um, in the last 18 months, people are realizing that some of this data has in fact been used for something good, something to help them out. As an example, you know, if you were doing a temperature check in a public place, right, uh, prior to the pandemic, that would have been a big issue. But we don't have a lot of people objecting to a temperature check these days. That's because we know why it's being done, right? So it's all about, um, you know, it's, it's about sharing the right data at the right time to the right entity and doing it securely. Of course, that's a motherhood statement. It's how do you, how do you make that a reality, right? Um, number one is it goes back to this, this concept of digital inclusion, right? 
I think people have the right to know what the data is being used for, how it's going to benefit them, what's in it for me, right? WITFM, what's in it for me? If I understand why the data is being collected, great. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, there could be, um, you know, maybe even monetary benefit in some cases, right? There's a lot of debate in terms of who, data ownership. Who owns the data? Is it the person that's been recorded? I'll just take an example of uh, an elevator in, in a public space, right? Is it that elevator company that owns the data or the service company that owns the data or me as somebody that's using the elevator that owns the data? We don't know. I think these are all up for debate. Depends on what the information is used for. Uh, in some cases, depends on what we're going to do with the data. So as in, as in the public space, I'd say, if you know, there has we have to think of perhaps some incentives, right? As in, I, it could be that I'm sharing my data, but I'm sharing it for larger trend analysis, which, by the way, I'm going to consume through application free apps, right? That's my motivation to be able to share the data. Now, all data is not the same, right? Some data is much more sensitive than the other. Um, sometimes data is completely anonymous, and so you, you have to understand the beauty of some of these devices is these sensors is they have no context. A temperature sensor is an example. It doesn't know that it's recording temperature. It doesn't know that it is located in this building, in this facility. It, it is a data point, it's bits and bytes. Then, you know, when you, when you consume it, you start adding a context to it. So there's multiple ways to mask out the context completely and therefore reduce the risk of a threat, so to say. That said, definitely, you know, we were talking, we we're mixing security and privacy and I'm interlinking both of those. But that said, we've got to, you know, from a privacy standpoint, we certainly have to have more regulations. They're already in discussions. There is a big need for, for standards, right? So the US uh, president just signed the Internet of Things uh, Cyber Security Improvement Act mm. here. Um, it was actually, it's, uh, it's been a year. Um, but this is building standards for IoT devices. UK uh, government also announced that I think in April recently. Um, they're trying to, they intend to introduce a new legislation around smart devices. For sure, there's a need to, to build these regulations, to build these standards, to build um, you know, consortiums, to be able to uh, put the right kind of governance on data, right, and, and controlling and managing data privacy. But at the end of the day, there's, it's still a very open chapter. There's still a lot of debate on it. Um, I'd say, you know, I would argue that the cloud, for example, is, is perhaps safer for your data than, uh, due to all the scrutiny, than a data center today, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, you've also heard of, of the, I don't know if you've heard about this fish, uh, fish tank, and uh, somebody, you know, somebody had a fish tank and there was this artificial fish in there. And uh, turns out they got hacked with that because that had a, that had a sensor. And uh, that's what the hacker used to get gain access to the home. So is there, are there problems? Absolutely. But I'd say, you know, we have to weigh the benefits, um, you know, over the, uh, over the challenges. And uh, I think we're seeing much more benefits of the technology, but we have to put an infrastructure and a framework around uh, governance around this. Yeah, there's that strategy thing again, isn't it? It's, it's, it's as 
as providers of, of the security, of, of, of providers of the confidence to the user. We need to know that we're, use, we're using the right digital certificates, that, we're, that we are segmenting our networks, that you know, the core systems are safe, all that, kind of, all that kind of stuff that drives confidence, but also to invest in the right automation systems over the top of it. You know, we, we've invested a lot in technology that, that proactively hunts, it's constantly hunting for threats and, and a few steps ahead. You know, while the hackers may be a few, three steps ahead, we're eight steps ahead. And if it happens once, you identify that and it never happens again. Just constant aggressive hunting with these automation tools that, hum that humans can't possibly do. So there's, there's an, an essential necessity for us to invest in these automation tools, but also to absolutely keep on it and keep them up to date. Because yeah. once you've got a breach and everybody knows about it, you've lost the confidence. And on that, that, privacy and, that privacy and security piece, I guess the challenge for the legislators is to know the tipping point and identify it and be aware that that's happening. And in a sense, you might argue it's come because... The, the proliferation of data, but also the acceleration of public understanding of data, their understanding of what's been stored about them, the, the, uh, the sort of acceleration of the narrative of, well, I, I would want to consent A, I don't need to consent to B, all of those aspects. There's a sort of acceleration of awareness, uh, which also breeds kind of unhelpful, you know, as we say, kind of conspiracies and, and that sort of stuff. And the government's job and legislators' job is to identify the point at which it can't be left unchecked because otherwise you lose control of the narrative, you lose, you lose the kind of idea of general consent among the public that these are technologies that are helpful. These are technologies that can improve quality of life. If, if the kind of paranoia and fear over data and privacy overtakes the potential gains in terms of the public collective narrative, then that's when I guess you've got problems. So a difficult, a difficult scenario, but you kind of feel like we're in that transition point right now where we've got to, we've got to get to grips with this in terms of both the legislation, but also the sort of the communications and the narrative around consent. Yeah, and, and Tim, Tim, remember, we're also putting, we're also the people, same people who, who are using Twitter and um, uh, Facebook and, and so some of these other social tools and sharing a large part of our lives publicly. So you're mm. absolutely right. It's, it's very important that we understand and socialize the purpose of uh, collection some, of some of this data for the greater good. Yeah, and how many times a day do we enter a website and just accept all the cookies without even a second thought. So there's a kind of inconsistency in everybody's behavior over where they, where they sort of draw the line and what's just, you know, well, take, take, take my information. That's fine. You can track me across the internet as much as you like. So I think there's a, there's an education piece around what, what the level of consent is, what the level of sort of concession of data is and that education piece, you know, somebody needs to get a grip of it and, and make it happen, I yeah. guess. There's, and there's some simple use cases out there, but there's some big ones. That everybody understands climate change absolutely on, every, on everybody's lips right now beyond pandemic almost in, the, in these last few days um it's good it's, it's, it's a very simple message to it to explain to folk how these technologies can help us collectively come together to manage these challenges and so and, and health as well is, is right up there and we totally understand now and um, with those of us with relatives living in care homes, how much potentially better it would have been 
if we could have had the assistive technology in place to allow them to live at home and to be cared for in the home. You know, that's, that's a thing that we can jump on straight away. And there are even simple things such as air pollution. I was working with one city that built a series of um, cycle lanes through the city center. Um, all the cyclists use the ring road, the most polluted area in the city. So what, what's needed? Some communication to explain what, what the cycle maps were and how, how much faster it was going to be to get to your destination. Yeah. So put it in human terms. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the assisted living piece, you know, that's again, that's there's a technological aspect to it. But then there's a sort of, you know, cross organizational aspect of, OK, well, how does healthcare communicate with acute social care? You know, it's a, it's right. it's a joint effort. It's not well we hand that person off to you at this point job done there's clearly going to need to be this um you know cultural and also technological coming together in terms of data sharing in terms of interoperability in terms of shared processes shared systems so that you know we can track people from one one part of the process to the other so we don't have this scenario of you know nhs discharging people into care homes with with a lack of clarity over who's who's got infections who's been tested and, and all this kind of stuff so inevitably it pulls in everything it's never a it's never a technology thing it's never a culture thing it's a mixture of all these things right yeah it is and, and, and just at the at the base level everybody can understand this affordability you know the the, the, the your council tax the majority of that goes on i don't know whether the majority is the right word much of that goes on pe keeping people in care homes yeah and it's usually unplanned so these these but these these Numbers are hitting local authority leaders from nowhere. And we can proactively make that a much better experience for both family and also more affordably deliver the right kind of services to our people. Yeah. No brainer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we um as we as we sort of come into a close, but I, I always I always like to sort of look down the line uh as to, to end things off and this is this is probably the third unfair question i've i'll ask uh during this episode but i guess the question is what's next um lalita you've done a great job of outlining some of these kind of early stage use cases how to get started for you know whether it's a local authority start with one building start with one project as we start to stitch some of this together i guess it unlocks new possibilities so maybe looking a little bit further towards the horizon, what, what are the opportunities next for our towns and cities and, and the, the leaders of those places in terms of using technology in the coming years? Where do you see the biggest wins coming? That's, that's a good uh, question. You go, you go, Lita. Okay, well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> so I think we've talked about quite a few um, concepts here. We've, you know, we've had a fun time actually uh, painting a picture of the future, but I'd say you know if I think of the um, the top um, areas of progress, um, the number one area is going to be tied to sustenance and um, our carbon footprint. Um, it is becoming a burning issue. Uh, we're already behind the curve, and uh, the commitment that I see, um, um, why you know it, it, while not ideal, is is still very. Um, you know, encouraging, right? We're seeing people come together. So uh, we're seeing boards come together. Uh, pretty much any investment decision uh, involves a sustenance angle to it. So very, very positive changes. And so when you think about that, almost 
you know, a lot of these initiatives in the city and spaces around spaces, be it the 15-minute city, uh, be it smart energy, be it smart lighting, um, they're all tied together. And like you rightly stated, Tim, um, it's, um, you know, they're, they're going to come together and they unlock multiple different possibilities that couldn't that we couldn't think of earlier, right? For example, when these systems are tied together, I can make sure my waste management or waste collection, as an example, is tied to routing, which is tied to street lighting, which is tied to uh, perhaps um, um, parking. And so all of these things, when they come together, it's a while away, but when they come together, it runs like a smooth oil engine. Um, that's one angle. The other thing I see um, shaping up very quickly is this concept of e-governance and citizen services. Um, I think the expectations are rising. Um, there is going to be a need, you know, this, this whole concept of data governance and things like that is, going, is a very wide concept. And therefore, in order to make anything like that happen, NHS database is a classic example, right? Um, you're going to have to, there is a lot of change management involved. There's a lot of convincing involved. And that can only be driven through more transparency and inclusiveness. Therefore, promoting citizen well-being and engagement um, and driving these e-citizen, e-governance initiatives are, I think, going to be key as we move forward. Great stuff. So, Simon, Lalita and her team are, are working their socks off to deliver your utopian image of the world. So how do you feel about that? And, and what are your final thoughts in terms of where we're headed? But you know that I love my history. I love my places. I love cities, and I love what what could they could become. I think I think that finally this that we need to take seize this opportunity to move away from identical city centres and turn them into dynamic places um, that where we where we live, work, share, play, and do all those sustainability things that, that we talked about. I think that's a hundred percent. High on my list of things that I want to see, and it, and it plays very much to the the green agenda, and um, but I think probably more importantly, it, it changed it plays to happiness. It changed it plays to happy citizens that feel that, in from a government perspective, government's not looking over them. It's been done to them. They're actually part of it because they're with through their devices. They're they're being responded to effectively and i think that that for me is the real nirvana you know we're seeing we're seeing a real sea, sea changing planet you know the uk government the uk government has hit the button on we're going to digitize planning the old Lud luddites you know we have to keep it as as it is but they recognize that it all has to come together and planning's part of it um, and that will allow us to finally speed up decision making and, and to get to a point where our politicians are actually sat there working on real data and been able to not take gambles on where investments should be, but actually putting things where we know they're going to be needed. Yeah. I think it's vital. So citizens, we feel our money's been put in the right place, big outcome. Um, and, and to drive proactive data decisions, data-driven decisions, data-driven city as part of our, our, our policies and, and a part of, of, of governments so allowing us to and free up some of those bottlenecks to allow us to go, okay, this needs to happen now. And we just do it. Doesn't go through a three, three month consultation process. It just does it because the outcome in two years time is so much bigger than wasting that three months. 
So that, that's a real nirvana for me. And, it, and it'll be great for the people who are working within the civic sector as well, because they'll, they'll be just feel that much more dynamic and that much more connected. Yeah. All right. Well, the, the pursuit of happiness, I, I can't think of a better place to leave it. I feel like we should play out on all you need is love or something, but it's, it's been great to hear how the potential and the vision meets the technology now in the near future and then longer term. So I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been absolutely great to get into some of this stuff with you both. So Lita and Simon, just want to say thank you so much for joining us for the conversation. Thank you for inviting us. I really enjoyed it. So there we have it. Brilliant conversation with Simon and Lita. Really getting into what some of the short, medium and long-term opportunities are with technology to enable reimagining our places, reimagining how we animate cities and towns and how we recover in the post-COVID era. Lots to unpack there. And we've run a couple of recent sessions at our events around this. So I'll put some links in the show notes below to help you get into that, watch them on demand and really build your knowledge around this space. Gratuitous plug, uh, we've got an event coming up for DDAT leaders, the government data show in September, where we're going to be exploring how data can enable new ways of delivering services and new opportunities for the public sector to transform the way they operate. I'll also put some links for that in the show notes so you can get stuck into that. Free to register as a public sector executive, as always. So do take up that opportunity. That's it for now. I'll be along soon with another conversation with a public sector change maker. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>